And we're one minute past the hour, so we can get started as usual. I don't have any announcements or uh, points of interest or discussion. So, uh, Robert, the floor is yours. Okay, let's get started. We have a lot of ground to cover today because the text is kind of lengthy. I'm going to go ahead and read it, and then we will talk about it. Okay, so chapter four, John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. Now, when Jesus knew that the Pharisees had heard that he was winning and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and set out once more for Galilee. But he had to pass through Samaria. Now he came to a Samaritan town called Sychar, near the plot of land that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, since he was tired from the journey, sat right down beside the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me some water to drink. For his disciples had gone off into the town to buy supplies. So the Samaritan woman said to him, How can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for water to drink? For Jews use nothing in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you had known the gift of God and who it is who said to you, Give me some water to drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said to him, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? Surely you're no greater than our ancestor Jacob, are you? For he gave us this well and drank from it himself, along with his sons and his livestock. Jesus replied, everyone who drinks some of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks some of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. But the water... Yeah, but the water that I will give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and have to come here to draw water. He said to her, Go call your husband and come back here. The woman replied, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, Right. Sorry, right you are when you said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the man you are living with now is not your husband. This you said truthfully. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you people say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You people worship what you do not know. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. But a time is coming, and now is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such people to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and the people who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, the one called Christ. Whenever he comes, he will tell us everything. Jesus said to her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Now at the very moment his disciples came back, They were shocked because he was speaking with a woman. However, no one said, what do you want? Or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water water jar, went off into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Surely he can't be the Messiah, can he? So they left the town and began coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. So the disciples began to say to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did they? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to complete his work. Don't you say there are four more months and then comes the harvest? I tell you, look up and see that the fields are already white for harvest. 
The one who reaps receives pay and gathers fruit for eternal life, so that the one who sows and the one who reaps can rejoice together. For in this instance, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you did not work for. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the report of the woman who testified. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they began asking him to stay with them. He stayed there two days, and because of his word, many more believed. They said to the woman, No longer do we believe because of your words, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this one really is the Savior of the world. Okay. So that is the text for today, and I want to start with a little bit of background. Well, really more than a little bit, because the only way to kind of grasp the scandal going on in this story is to understand a little bit about Samaria and a little bit about the the gender dynamics at the time, right? So let's begin with Samaria and Samaritans, right? The there was a lot of um, conflict, really to say the least, between the Jews and the Samaritans. Why is that? These Samaria used to be the northern kingdom of Israel, okay? And the northern kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians, and the southern kingdom survived. And the southern kingdom eventually is the kingdom of Judah. Well, both kingdoms, this is all in the Old Testament. You can read about this in the book of Kings, in First Kings, uh, or Second, well, scratch it. In, yeah, in First Kings. <laughs> um, but... Both kingdoms had become ha wicked, and that's how the Bible would describe them. They had deviated from the ways of God, but the northern kingdom was even worse than the southern kingdom, and they're destroyed by the Assyrians first. And then the, but really, the southern kingdom didn't fare a whole lot better. They they continued doing wicked things, and then they're destroyed later by the Babylonians. Now the difference historically, and this really matters to the Jews. This really matters to our story, is that. When the Assyrians took the people from the northern kingdom, from Samaria, they took them away. Then they brought people from other nations and settled them there. Now, eventually, of course, Jewish people returned to this region. But now it is a mixture of Jewish people with people from other nations, from, you know, what we would call or what they would have called Gentiles. And so we have racially impure people and and i know that this is very edgy like it you know I, I i'm not trying actually to be edgy here but this was important to the people at the time it, it really was so the people in samaria were considered unclean now it's actually quite complicated because the Jewish people did not see the Samaritans as either Gentile or Jewish. They were somewhere in between. And that, you know, that's not a nice place to be, uh, <laughs> racially speaking, like they're not one or the other. And so the treatment kind of varied over time. To, to give you a silly example, the Jews would teach that you could get a haircut from a Samaritan, but you could not get a haircut from a Gentile, right? So the Samaritan was like closer to being Jewish, but not all the way there. So you have this, this racial aspect to the relationship between the nations. You also have a religious 
which at the time is the same as saying political aspect to this, right? Because in these nations at that time, religion and politics are one and the same. There, there is no distinction between religion and politics like we do today. Well, the Samaritans had mixed their religion, their traditional Jewish religion with the Gentile religions. And that, of course, if to us, that may be like, okay, that's like a neat historical footnote or something. No, this is a huge deal because this is the very reason why Israel was destroyed to begin with, both the Northern and Southern Kingdom. Okay. It was for this religious mixing. So this is a huge deal that it goes on up until this point in the story. And to add insult to injury here, these Samaritans, they believed that the true mountain on which they should worship was a mountain in Samaria, surprise, surprise, uh, Mount Gerizim. And so they would reject Jerusalem as being the holiest place in the land. And I, I kind of say this in the blog, it's like insulting Jerusalem is only second to insulting God. And then I put a parenthetical, if there's any distinction at all, right? Because to, to insult God's holy place is to insult God. I mean, there, there barely is here any distinction. Um, and if you bring the political aspect into this, right, whoever has the holy mountain kind of becomes the de facto ruler. And I hate to look at such a deep theological debate just in terms of politics, but, but let's face it. I mean, that, that matters. So to give you a, a few examples, uh, Samaria and Judea, well, in Israel, I ought to say, they have been at war at times. Sometimes the Samaritans had allied with Gentiles to attack uh, the Israelites. And then in, in a, I think it was 129 BC or yeah, 129 BC, the Jews destroyed the, the Samaritan temple. Okay. And that's still, I mean, that's 150 years before the story that that's still somewhat recent. Okay. So, uh, there's a lot of bad blood between these two countries. That's important to our story. And then on top of that, we need to keep in mind that we are dealing here with an interaction between a man and a woman. In in our modern culture, I don't feel like we can... I don't think that we can at least emotionally grasp what a big deal this is, right? We can we can talk about it intellectually. We understand it, but but this would have been uh, quite a big deal. Probably the closest nowadays that we would get to a similar interaction would be in the Muslim world, where gender dynamics are still um, very old school. I guess <laughs> there's probably a better term for that, but <laughs> um, at a, at any rate. Um, to give you a sense of how big of a deal this is, it having a conversation of about 15 minutes with, with a woman would actually warrant the assumption that uh, sexual relations had occurred between that man and that woman. Okay, so like just people people would have been justified in assuming that, which is not to say that that would actually have happened, but but this is the level of prejudice, if we want to say, against uh, a conversation between a man and a woman, who of course is not his wife. This would be different if they were spouses. Um, a conversation like that 
may be grounds enough for divorce, right? Like a, if, if it was a married woman talking to a man, then then her husband could say, no, I, I think that you've been unfaithful to me and we can get divorced. Um, and then on top of that, let, let, let's go ahead and talk about this woman in particular, and then we will, we will start kind of going verse by verse and pulling out some, some of the theological concepts out of this. But, and forgive me, before I get to the woman herself, let me add one more thing here, which is the, the scene here at the well. In the Old Testament, there are very important stories, very important scenes, if we want to call them that, where a man finds his wife at a well. Okay. And we're talking, these are like the big people in the Old Testament, uh, Abraham and Jacob, um, it, it, the kind of the, the, again, the big guys, the, the fathers of the whole Jewish religion and, and therefore also the Samaritan one. Well, I post those stories in the blog. I'm not going to read them, but they follow at least the same general idea of a man comes to the well and he, he either gets water for the woman or he gets water from her. And then next thing you know, they're married. You may think, why am I bringing this up? Like, this is so silly. Well, think about it in modern terms. Picture the following scene. This is the scene I use in, in, in my blog. Let's say that you're watching a movie and there's, they're in an office and there's a guy who's walking, there's a girl who's walking, they're, they're crossing paths and they kind of collide with one another. She drops all of her papers. They both immediately kneel down to pick him up and they kind of exchange some nervous glances and words. Okay. You already know what's happening, right? They are, they, this is how their romantic story begins. Now, I'm not saying by any means that this, that the story we read today is a romantic story, but what I'm saying is that the setup would have, would have romantic connotations. It would have had perhaps sexual connotations to the listeners. So a listener of the story at the time would have been kind of nervous. Like, where are you going with this, John? This is, this is, I, I kind of don't like it. <laughs> I don't like this at all. Um, but of course the, the story does not develop in that way. But you already have this, these romantic connotations to the setting. And now add to that fact, the characteristics of the woman. It, the story does not say that she was involved in adultery. Okay. It does not say that she was an adulterous woman, but the story certainly seems to imply that she has had five husbands and to be divorced by five husbands she must have been doing something wrong and and the most plausible explanation is adultery um now she's also living with a guy who's not her husband that well nowadays i suppose there's no big deal but i mean even 20 years ago in her own culture that would have been somewhat of a big deal and uh you know certainly at this time it was it would have been seen as, as sinful and the other little fact that we get in this story is that the woman goes to the well at noon, so the hottest part of the day, alone, which is unusual. Normally women would have done this task together as a group, but here she is alone. Now, people speculate, in my opinion, way too much about this fact. 
and they come up with all of these stories and all that, which I suppose is fine, but I, I'm trying not to take it any further than I should. But I think it's fair to assume that other women did not want to be associated with her. And uh, given the other data we have in the text, it, it reinforces the idea that, that perhaps she was an, an adulterous woman. And this actually kind of changes one response there in the story. I'll go ahead and get ahead of myself and mention this, or we'll forget it later. But, you know, in, in this story, Jesus says to her, bring your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. There are two um, potential reasons for that response. One, she may just be covering up her current sin, the fact that she's living with an unmarried man. That's fair enough. But the other quite uh, reasonable explanation is that she was keeping her options open, right? So she has met this man at the well, and maybe, you know, she's saying, I don't have a husband to effectively let him know, hey, I am available. But there you go. This, uh, the fact that Jesus would be talking to a Samaritan is already a big deal. And the fact that she is a woman is also a big deal. So this whole scene is just kind of scandalous and uncomfortable. That being said, then how does the conversation, how does the conversation develop? Well, let me here go back to verse four right quick, because it says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. I posted a map in the blog if you want to look at it, or you can just Google a map. Uh, but that's not true in the necessary sense, right? It's not like Jesus absolutely had to go through Samaria. He could have made it from Judea to Galilee through the, he could just go east of Samaria. And that, that would have been a longer route, but it's a route that Jews often took to avoid Samaria. They did not even want to come into contact with them. So when it says that Jesus had to go through there, what does that mean? And if you look at how John uses that word necessity in his gospel, it, it, it often means this is what what God wants to do. This is his mission or his, you know, this is what he's trying to accomplish. And so that phrase, once you kind of understand all this, makes you think, okay, Jesus had to go through Samaria because he wanted to, because because that this is part of his plan, uh, which makes all this all the more special, right? Well, so he goes, he meets this woman at the well and right says, can you give me water to drink and all that stuff? And so then he says, right, here's where we start getting into the more theological stuff. He says, if you knew who I was, and I'm paraphrasing, you would have asked me for living water. Now, this is another one of those double entendres that John uses. It, it, I find it fascinating. I mean, I, just how John's writing is so incredibly clever. Because remember last week or the week before, we were talking about being born again and how that same expression can mean born from above or born again. And the readers, like we understand that Jesus means born from above, like born from the light, born from, from God. But the listener, Nicodemus, takes it the other way 
and he takes it to mean born again and he's confused. We have the exact same dynamic going on here. Living water means, uh, it can mean two things. The more common understanding of it would have been water that is flowing, right? Living water like in a creek or a river instead of water that is just in a pool that is not moving. And this is actually really important to understand this idea of moving water or flowing water, because under Jewish tradition, the water you should use for cleansing, right, for all of these rituals of water cleansing that we have discussed before, ideally, you should use living water, you should use flowing water. And water out of a well might or might not be living water. It actually depends on the well. And this is a distinction that they made, by the way. This is not just me reading kind of modern well science into what they thought. No, not at all. They would have made a distinction between a well that was reaching an underground uh, river or whatever they would be called, um, which, so that would have counted as living water from, from a different kind of well in which the water just kind of sits there. Okay. So there's, there's one understanding. The other understanding would be water that is alive, water that actually, uh, you know, has, uh, has, a, has a mind, if we, if we want to describe life in, in that way, um, and, and that in turn gives life, right? Now, we have been reading the Gospel of John, so we understand that Jesus means the latter, right? The water, he's representing the Spirit. He's just saying the exact same thing he said to Nicodemus, you must be born of the Spirit. You need the living water. It's the exact same thing. She doesn't take it that way. And uh, she says, you know, how can you get this water? You don't even have a bucket. I, I will add here that her tone is, her tone is unclear. She could be confused or it could be a tone of mockery. Uh, personally, I think that the latter makes more sense. That she's, she's going, yeah, sure. Yeah, right. You don't even have a bucket. What are you talking about? You know, um, particularly because she also says, are, are you saying you're greater than that you're greater than Jacob? And this is a big deal. The Samaritans, they thought of themselves as descendants of Jacob, right? But notice that the Jews don't think of the, of, of the Samaritans as descendants of Jacob. They think of them as racially impure people who are descendants of whoever the Assyrians brought back into their land and whatever other Jews resettled there. Um, okay. So essentially, are you saying that you're greater than our, our like key forefather here? And, and, and Jesus effectively says, yes, I, I am. I can, I can provide the, the living water. Um, there's also here a comparison being made between, or, or sorry, let me rephrase that. I want to make sure that we don't miss the point that Jesus is making when he says that uh, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but I have living water of which, you know, you'll never be thirsty again. Well, it, Jesus is not trying to diminish our physical needs here, right? Clearly we are going to need regular water. We need food. I mean, Jesus himself was thirsty in this story. That's clearly not the point. The point that Jesus is making is he's not contrasting his living water to, to the regular need for regular water, but that his living water is greater than this sacred well, right? This, this Jacob's well, 
what Jesus is bringing is even greater uh, in a, from a sacredness uh, standpoint. Uh, the Torah and wisdom were often compared to water in their tradition. And a good teacher would be compared to somebody who would provide living water. But the way that wisdom was explained, once you had the water of wisdom, you you would thirst for more. And that makes sense when it comes to wisdom, right? You want more wisdom. That, that absolutely makes sense. That's fair. And But Jesus is saying, this is not like that either. This is not just like wisdom of which you will want more and more. What I am offering you is a once for all kind of deal. Like if you, if you get this water, you need no more. Um, uh, finally, on that point of, of living water, you can look at other biblical references that John was probably alluding to. God is referred to as living water in the Old Testament. And then in the end times in Revelation, the you know Jerusalem, like the new Jerusalem in heaven, it, it is depicted as flowing waters coming out of it. Okay, so those are important biblical references. Then... Notice also that Jesus settles the debate, right? Because the, the, the woman brings up the fact that Samaritans, they worship at their own mountain and they have this fight with the Jews because the Jews say it's Jerusalem and the Samaritans say it's Mount Gerizim. And Jesus doesn't avoid the debate. He actually, he, he settles it. He says, you guys worship what you do not know. So you guys are wrong. And we worship what we do know. So we're right. The Jews are right. And uh, that is, well, and then we'll go into this idea of, you know, now you will worship in spirit. So this, this debate about the mountain is about to kind of become outdated or a moot point. But before we get to that, I think this is an incredibly important theological point because the samaritans they only accepted the pentateuch the first five books of the old testament now remember that the christians and jews accept the same scriptures when it comes to the old testament the the christian old testament is identical to the jewish sacred writings they're organized differently which is why we don't have the same number of books but that's merely because we split the writings into we, we split them differently. It is the, it is the same content, however. And so the, the Samaritans are saying, no, you know, we only accept the first five books. And, and because of that, we accept this one mountain as the holy mountain. And you guys have this, these other writings that eventually talk about King David and the Davidic line. And, and so it leads you to a different conclusion. And here there's a clear affirmation of Jesus that the, at least Jesus himself, whether, you know, whatever you believe of him, but Jesus himself believes the Jewish tradition, the Jewish writings to be the correct ones. And so if you, if you do believe G Jesus, I think you have to go along with that, right? That, that those are the correct sacred writings. Um, and, and therefore, you know, the way that salvation is described like the path to the savior that is described in the old testament is the correct one okay two more points okay i'm on the 30 minute mark uh, i'm all right so two more points here then what is the conclusion of this because jesus says you know this debate between the two mountains is about to become moot and again i am paraphrasing 
because we're moving into another time. And in fact, that time is here. It's, it's beautiful how he says that, right? Uh, in which you will worship in spirit and truth. And what does that mean to worship in spirit? This is a difficult, or I, well, I think this can be a difficult phrase to interpret. I, I set forth the opinion of a scholar named Craig Keener on there. And I agree with him on this. I'm not just, uh, I'm not just throwing somebody out there, but, but I think he's got a solid argument on here that the word in notice the word in was just used like in this mountain or in this other mountain. So it's clearly locative. It, it refers to a certain location. And so then when Jesus says you will worship in spirit, it's still referring to location in a sense, meaning that, you will worship being indwelled in the spirit of God in what of course nowadays we'd call the Holy Spirit. Um, but I don't think in the gospel of John, we've seen that phrasing quite yet, uh, but we will at any rate. Um, so the, this, this idea of worshiping in spirit doesn't mean to worship like with your whole heart, it's not referring to your spirit, to your heart. It is referring to worshiping, worshiping in God's spirit, inspired by God, um, so to speak, which also would have been a very common notion to the listener. So I think that that is how the original audience would have interpreted this. And the the last key point that I want to make, and then if I, if I have some time, I might make another couple of, of points, but there's this idea that Jesus has a, a mission, right? Like it says God is looking for worshipers such as these. And Jesus had to go to Samaria, that's how he puts it, although we know that he didn't geographically really have to go through Samaria. Um, so there is a clear sense here that God is, is looking to uh, spread his own message of salvation, right? His own messianic message and what's shocking about this is that this this is not happening in the context of a jewish town this is happening in the context of a samaritan town um, with all the you know all the controversy that 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 brings and on top of that he's saying this to a woman this goes a long ways to take down racial and gender barriers. And, and I don't want to be misunderstood here. Jesus very clearly affirms in other places that Israel had its special place. Like it, salvation had to come from the Jews. Like the Old Testament uh, is dealing with the people of God, meaning the Jews, meaning Israel. And it's not like they got that wrong somehow. That very much was the plan, but but now we're entering a different time, right? When salvation is going out to everyone, despite uh, uh, racial differences, despite gender differences, despite all of that. Uh, so it, it, it is a very powerful uh, change in dynamics. And the, the, the climax of this whole story is Jesus revealing himself. Right, because she says, uh, the woman, the woman says, when the prophet comes, he is going to reveal all these things to us. 
uh, here's a, an interesting detail, but I, I do want to throw this in that because the Samaritans only took the first five books of the Old Testament and they didn't take all of it, the last prophet in their writings would have been Moses. So she's thinking of the prophet that Moses talks about. Normally, when we are talking about the Christ or the Messiah, we're thinking of the person that comes from the, from the Davidic line, who comes from David. Now, of course, these two people, once we read the New Testament, we realize that they're the same person. They're the prophet that, that Moses is talking about, the prophet that David is talking about, they are the same person. But she doesn't have all, all of the all, she doesn't have all of that background, all of those ideas. She's thinking of the guy that Moses talked about. And Jesus flats out responds, it responds, sorry, I, I, the one speaking with you, am he. So he fully reveals himself and says, yes, I am the guy. This may not seem perhaps like a, like a big deal, but if you've read the other gospels, you know that many times Jesus concealed his identity uh, up until the very end, right? There is kind of an unveiling at the end of the story, particularly in the other gospels. He, here, very early on in the story, he reveals himself, and again, not to a Jew, but to a Samaritan. Uh, quite, quite scandalous. Um, so, there's the climax to to the story jesus affirming who he is and then the, the rest of the story goes on to say that you know she shares all of this with other people in her town and many believe in jesus notice that jesus spends a couple of days with them so those who might claim that jesus had to go through some area because he was in a hurry doesn't quite match with the text because if jesus was in a huge hurry then you know he would not have spent a couple of extra days uh, Matt, I don't know if you want to announce about questions or if you want me sure, to Sure, yeah. Okay. As usual, guys, if you have a question or a point of discussion, just put question in the chat. Just the word question will suffice, and uh, I will bring you in uh, in order. Okay. And right before we, we bring him in, let me just say that I... I want to address a question that would ask, that was asked last week. I won't do it right off the bat. I'll, I'll let other people talk and make comments and questions. But then I do want to address the question that Batman asked last time. And there's also a writing in my blog about that particular question. But I can open up the floor. Okay. Uh, well, thank you as always. Let's see. Um, I'm going to get right to the question askers. I feel like there, there's maybe a, a thing or two I might be interested in uh, asking about, but I'm going to see if anybody else gets at it. And perhaps we can return to some of my questions at the end. Uh, but Donald, if you're ready to go, go ahead and unmute yourself. Hey, hey, Robert. Um, first of all, just major props for how you always uh, tie in the Old Testament uh, references. I really, really appreciate that. Um, so the obvious question for me is, why did Jesus do the big reveal here to the Samaritan woman? I mean, it's it's just fantastic in terms of the narrative. But even just the chapter before at the wedding at Cana, he was telling everybody, you know, don't don't tell anybody I did this. <laughs> Which is kind of comical in a sense, but. Um, and again, as you referenced in the, all the other Gospels, he's constantly telling people, don't say anything, don't tell anything. Why, why do you suppose did he do the big reveal here to the Samaritan woman? I, 
You know, that's a very hard question. So I, I'm just going to speculate here some, but I, I could be, of course, I could be totally wrong on this. It, it seems to me that, uh, first of all, Jesus has a very specific plan. And it seems like with the Jews, he had to take a different approach because they had very different expectations of who the Messiah would be. The Jews expected a political king who would beat the Romans and conquer the known world and, uh, you know, uh, bring forth a political kingdom. The Samaritans, it seems to me, and, and let me just be clear on this, um, uh, we we're actually uncertain about what the Samaritans believed. What I shared today is the consensus among pretty much everyone, but, but there is some level of doubt here. We are guessing to some extent what the Samaritans believed, but if what we know is correct, they don't, they don't seem to have had the same misconceptions. So perhaps it wasn't dangerous to Jesus' mission to disclose who he is because they would not try to crown him as king or emperor in a political sense. Um, that's one potential explanation, uh, but uh, I'm sure that there's others out there. That, that makes sense. I, I'll take it as valid. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Donald. And that actually was my exact question. I, I understand why this would be significant, but the motive to do that seems uh unclear to me so yeah it, it seems like among the jews whenever like jesus did miracles it always went wrong um and we'll get to some of that but it, people immediately thought cool we got our king over here and again when i say king i mean it in a political sense a guy who could make bread for us a guy who can give us fish and i, and I mean that literally like you know here he feeds the five thousand miraculously and they're and their takeaway is like, cool, this guy can feed us. <laughs> and, and so it seems like he had to take a different approach with, okay. with his people. Uh, Gilgamesh, you're up next if you're ready. Well, I, I was thinking about that. Could it be that he wanted to show that God's kingdom is open to, is welcome to all that believe in him and that want to follow his what Jesus is tr uh, trying to do is that why he may have stopped in Samaria to welcome the Samarians into the kingdom of God? Do you think yeah. that's possible? Because yeah, it makes I'm... more sense that why he stopped there instead and revealed himself instead of everywhere else that he went. He wanted people not to know who he was, but here he does that, and I think it was because he wanted to invite the Samarians and tell them that they are welcome, unlike the Jews' approach that they said that they weren't welcome because they were mixed race, that they're welcome because if they believe in God and, you know, they're welcome to his kingdom. Yes, I mean, I think there's something to that as well. I mean, certainly I think that Jesus going to Samaria to share the good news there was exactly for what you said. I mean, he, Jesus is making it clear from the beginning of his ministry that I have come to save all. And there would have been no quote unquote, worse people to go to than the Samaritans, right? Yeah. It would it would have been less controversial if Jesus went to the Gentiles uh, because they didn't have this whole history of animosity and war and, and all that stuff. Um, now, as far as the revelation itself, perhaps, perhaps Jesus reveals himself first to the Samaritans to also make that point and say, to really kind of emphasize that and say, look, I really am coming for everyone in a good way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what I was thinking, because the way that he approaches the, because he knows what the Jews are looking for, and 
that's why doing what he does here to Sumerians is to say, yeah, everybody's welcome in. I'm not a political king. I'm, you know, here to deliver the message of God, what God wants. Mm-hmm. I'm not here to be a political king and everything. Yeah, yeah, I think that's quite right. Okay. Well, thanks. <laughs> Thank you, Gilgamesh. Uh-huh. Yeah, you as well. Uh, okay, Chris Blair is up next. Thank you. Um, first of all, Robert, good job as always. That's uh, I really like some of your comments, uh, especially the bit about um, you know the 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 comments regarding truth and spirit as a specific location, so to speak, mm-hmm. and that it you know what that means as far as a right way and a wrong way to worship. Um, uh, my comment, actually, I'm going to just pick up right where Gilgamesh left off as far as this uh, things progressing from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. You know, he tells the Samaritan woman salvation is from the Jews. Uh, And I think it's good for us to remember that the Bible doesn't begin with the Jews and it doesn't end with the Jews. This this whole nation is a delivery vehicle, so to speak, for the salvation that God promised way back in the, in Genesis. And, uh, now it's important. It's a, it's a, it's a, you know, a lot of the Bible is the the story of the Jewish nation, but in particular, Acts uh, picks up where Jesus tells his disciples, "But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses." And this is where it's interesting to me: in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In other words, it's going to start uh, in Jerusalem. J- Jerusalem is this delivery vehicle for salvation, and it's going to radiate out from there. And uh, anyway, just uh, wanted to throw that out and see what your thoughts were. I thank you for adding that. I, I think that's that's perfect. And and yeah, there clearly was this plan, like you're describing, like it begins with with Jerusalem and it and it moves to Samaria and, and so forth, just like what you're describing. Um, and and I think that another thing, I guess, that we can that we can add to this conversation is what Jesus says at the end of this story, where he says, you reap where you have not sowed. Um, and generally the interpretation for, for that comment, in fact, what the early church fathers thought about that, that passage is that those who, who, who started the process were the prophets. It was the fact that they had the old Testament, right? So in Samaria, the word of God had already been, planted by the fact that they had the Pentateuch. And so Samaria stands in a different place to the rest of the world. And with Gentiles, you kind of have to start from square one and with the story. Not so with the Samaritans. They are already worshiping the one true God, even if they don't have all the information, right? He says, you worship who you do not know, uh, meaning you, you don't quite have it right. But you are you you got something right at least, uh, and so it's a natural beginning point to go to the people who have at least a part of the Old Testament, and they are ready to receive the Christ. Okay, uh, thank you, Chris. Thank you, Rob. And uh, we're all uh, caught up on question askers. So if uh, anybody wants to offer a point in discussion or a question, again, just type question in the chat. I'd be happy to bring you in, uh, but. Uh, with the remaining time that we have, Robert, did you want to return to Batman's question? Yeah. I do so, have, one just popped up. So oh, I'll, do you want to 
talk to uh, Patrick first, or do you want to address Batman's question first? I guess let me address Batman's question, and then we'll go to Patrick. And then okay. what I what I'm about to say may generate more questions and controversy, although I don't mean to. Uh, right. Well, uh, sit tight, Patrick. We'll be right with you then. Thanks for your patience. Um, so the question last week, it, it this has a name because it, it is it is argued so much, it is talked about so much that it kind of gets its name. It is the fate of the unevangelized. So what what happens to people who never hear of Christ? And I think that this is a very important question. I think it's a very sensible question, right? If if somebody tells you, hey, Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, immediately you're going to think, well, like just like Batman said, what, what happens to those who never hear? And there are different answers that are given to this question. We don't have a specific verse that just says, like, what happens to those who never hear of the gospel? This happens to them, which is not to say that we don't that we don't have any verses that um, you know give us information about this question. So I, I really don't want to say, oh, we just we don't know, we know nothing. Although that is one of the views, <laughs> so I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, but before I even address those, I I, I need to give one kind of disclaimer, which is that this is kind of a, a an inside question, right? In the sense that we are assuming the Christian system, whether true or not, we're assuming it for this question and, and saying, well, okay, if the if the Christian system is true, then what what about this? What about those who are unevangelized? Uh, and or put another way, this is an, an internal consistency question. Well, in the Christian system, God is perfectly loving, God is perfectly just. And whenever I am confronted with a difficult question that perhaps is not completely settled, I'm going to begin there and go, I trust that God is who he is. That part is clear to me. And so however this question is answered, I I am confident that it is in a loving and just way, right? Um, so that that's my beginning point for this. Now, with the specifics, how how exactly then is this question answered? And I'm going to give five potential responses. Really, within each of these categories, you could go into kind of sub responses. It can get more specific, but I don't think that's necessary unless somebody has questions. The first answer is the one that you would expect which is those who do not hear the gospel do not have an opportunity of salvation. They, those who do not hear the gospel are damned. Um, at first blush, this may seem very unfair, but it's not necessarily so. Uh, th there's a couple of reasons that why this is not necessarily unfair. One is there are some Christians who believe that God elects those who will be saved, like specifically he... Uh, Put it, put it another way, he unilaterally elects those who are saved. And so um, they would say that people who never hear the gospel are, are people who were not elected into salvation. And so they're not really in any different position from anyone else. Um, but even if that's not your your particular belief as a Christian, um, you you could have another actually explanation for this, which is to say that God knows who would respond positively to the gospel. Okay, notice that I'm not saying who will respond, but who would respond positively to the gospel. And 
if he knows that somebody would not, if somebody would react negatively to it, then he might put them in situations where they never hear it, because even if they do, they would reject it anyway. So there is effectively no harm done there. Um, yeah. So that's that's one view on this question. The Another potential answer to this question is that people, they do not need to hear specifically the gospel, specifically the name of Christ, to be saved, which is not to say that they're saved apart from Christ. Uh, I guess let me give another specific, a very important disclaimer before I go on. That whenever I was thinking about this question and which potential answers to discuss, it seems to me that one of the core Christian beliefs that if you deny you, I mean, I don't mean this as an insult, but you're simply not a Christian, is that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, right? So anyone who says that people can be saved apart from Christ, um, and again, I, I don't mean this as an insult, but I think descriptively, they, they are not Christians. They, they're some other religion, and and okay, if they take that as an insult or not, you know, of course, that, that'd be up to them. Um, so all of the views I am going to describe affirm that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Well, so this view that I'm discussing now, it, it does not say that they are saved apart from Christ or some other way. It is to say that they react in faith to God, and so God grafts, grafts them into the salvation through Christ. Okay, Because at the end of the day, we're all saved through faith in God. These people just didn't have Christ's specific name. Um, and I'm not going to give the, the arguments for these positions unless somebody asks. Sorry if you hurt my dogs. Uh, sorry, my dogs were barking. Okay. The other, another potential view is that people have an opportunity to respond to the gospel after death. Uh, this view, uh, I think, is more popular with Catholics, although I'm not completely certain of that. Um, it, but some Protestants, although very few, hold uh, this view as well. Okay, so that that would kind of answer this potential inequality, right? Everyone has an opportunity, some in this life and some in the afterlife. The next view would be that everyone will actually go to heaven. Everyone will respond positively to the gospel, whether in this life or the next life, and everyone will go to heaven. Now, again, I want to make a clarification here that what I'm talking about here is Christian universalism, not just generic universalism. Oftentimes we hear from people that all roads kind of lead to the same place. It doesn't matter if you follow Buddha or if you follow Christ, right? All roads lead to the same place. That is certainly a non-Christian view or non-Christian view, I ought to say. This is the view that everyone will accept Christ specifically, uh, whether in this life or the next life. I will grant that analytically, this is not a different view meaning this is not discussing how or when people accept Christ. It's just saying that they will. Um, but it seems to me that if if in this view everyone will accept Christ, then how exactly or when exactly they do so, it doesn't really matter. And the, the last view would be the one that I alluded to at first, which is just agnosticism about this point, not about religion in general. It is to say, the Bible doesn't tell us the answer to this question, so we just cannot know, and that would be the end of the story. 
again, I, if people have questions, I, I don't mind going uh, deeper into any one of these views. Uh, we can talk about it more, but I want to emphasize this idea that regardless of the view that you take, the Christian view would be that uh, we're all saved through Christ. That is the old, that is the one way. And, and as long as you affirm that, I think that you can call it a Christian view. But it's not to say that all these views are correct. I mean, one of them is correct and the other one are the other ones are wrong. Um, and uh, but I, th that's where I am going to sit on the fence and and leave it at that. <laughs> no, way. that's that's what I was going to ask you. Is. I get I get that you mean sort of by mutual exclusivity. One is correct and the others yes. are not. But you're entitled to your own opinion. And I the reason that I choose to have you put these together and the reason that I choose to listen is because I think that you're well read and learned on these topics so if you had to choose um, <laughs> if you I, I, you're, you don't have to disclose I don't mean to try to pry it out of you but I would be interested in hearing which one you think is the uh, correct interpretation or understanding so I um, the, the reason that I didn't put my opinion, you know, kind of uh, front and center is because I don't want to alienate anybody who's listening to us or, you know, or participating rather is what I ought to say. Um, and, and I feel like a lot of your theological commitments will come to light once you answer this question. Hmm. Uh, and, and that's why I was trying to not disclose, but at the same time, I'm not, I'm not hiding anything. I, I lean towards answer number two. Um, but I honestly hold this quite loosely um, because at the end of the day, I'm kind of trusting in God's love and justice uh, and and how he does this. It, it, it really doesn't bother me. I'm not just saying that. Um, but, and, and I'll tell you why I lean towards number two. It's particularly because of the Old Testament. You have a story, for example, like uh, the book of Job. Job is not an Israelite, and he, but he has a relationship with God. Um, but you don't have any of the specifics. Um, and so it, it seems to me that that's plausible. Um, now, it could be, here's the other way that answer number two could, could be plausible, is that anyone who would repent then would hear of the name of Christ. And that's... Many people who believe in, in number two, they would say, well, they will still hear the gospel uh, because anyone who accepts whatever revelation they've been given, they will be given even more revelation. Um, but I don't want to take all, all the time up. I'm sorry to, sure, to do that. <laughs> I appreciate that. And I, I, um, I'm i sure Batman appreciates it too. There's a very thorough response to the point that he raised. And I'm glad we were able to, uh, to circle back on this. So... Um, Perhaps uh, I will email Batman as well, make sure that he's uh, aware that this um, answer to his question is out there. But uh, before I take up any more time, Patrick, if you're still around, go ahead and unmute yourself and uh, you're welcome to chime in. Yeah, uh, I think I could hear you anyway. Go one more time, go ahead. I can you hear me? Yes, sir. Go for cool. it. Um, so mine is more of a, I guess a question of strategy and approaching you know coming up to situations uh like this that came up in the passages that you read i don't really consider myself like a biblical scholar so i, I want to make sure i'm approaching it like the right way but i kind of you know when it came to the question of strategy like why 
why did he approach the situation this way? That was like the first question that came up. I kind of thought of it in the way that like a logical analysis of it, that like if God is omniscient and he knows everything backwards and forwards and knows, you know, everything that will happen in this place in time, you know, if you think about, you know, an individual that had that, you know, ability, their actions would seem inconsistent sometimes. Um, you know, it'd be one thing if they were inconsistent in their moral character or anything, but, you know, the way that they approached situations, um, you know, and people that they were trying to communicate with would seem odd because they know everything about that person and how they would react, you know, given specific information. Um, and so even back to like turning water into wine, like why, why approach it that way? Why reveal himself at that random wedding? Um, you know, because he knows something that I don't is what I was kind of approaching it with, but I don't know if that's just a cop out and if that I should avoid thinking of things that way. So I wanted to kind of get your perspective on that, Robert. I think you're a hundred percent correct. Right. I, I mean, yeah, there's little I can add to that. If we, if we have somebody who knows everything, uh, some of his actions might appear nonsensical to us, right? But he's setting events in motion that we can't even fathom, at least at the time. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, you explained it very well. I have nothing to add to that. Okay, cool. Um, and then just as, uh, and after, just because you had answered Batman's question, I didn't make it last week. So that was, that was interesting. And I, I guess the way that I had thought about that was, um, I, try, I think it was like Sherlock Holmes, like <laughs> the character he talked about how like he didn't understand that the uh, that the Earth um, wasn't the center of the universe and that the you know, he, and he, he mentioned to Watson's character, like, how does that affect my life? You know, like, does it really matter? Ultimately, I just need to live my life, you know, in a way that's consistent with, you know, my my moral code or everything. So it, it's good to think about, but I don't stress about it because ultimately I just need to do what I'm, you know, commanded to do. Yeah. I, I agree wholeheartedly with you. Cool. Thanks, Robert. <laughs> Muted myself. Thank you, Patrick. Uh, we're right at the top of the hour. So I suppose, uh, unless you have any closing thoughts, Robert, we will finish right on time. Uh, no, I, you know, I hope I didn't make anybody too upset with uh, <laughs> this particular controversial topic. Uh, I, I will continue not to try to push kind of my own views, but I, you know, I endeavor to, to put all the options on the table that I think uh, at least um, are reasonable options. I can't possibly put every alternative there, right? Like some yeah, are just well, too wild. That That's exactly what I'm personally looking for. And I, I, Hope people find value in and uh, i like to know your personal opinion but i i like to know the options on the menu and i like to know the reasons why you select the option that you do and i thought you did a great job of uh, explaining all that so appreciate the really i mean i appreciate the the weekly um the weekly lesson of course but i really appreciate following up on a question of importance from the week prior because that's really above and beyond and uh and so thank you for that all right, everybody. Uh, thanks for joining as usual. Uh, we will be back next Saturday, uh, 8 p.m. Eastern time. In the meantime, have a great week and thank you for joining.